This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Bill Baker. For 20 years, he was at the helm of Channel 13 WNET, the flagship public television station in the country. Now he's president emeritus, but is still focused on media and the problems racking the journalism industry. Last fall, Dr. Baker published an article in The Nation emblazoned with the headline, How to Save the News. I visited Dr. Baker in his office to ask him about that article. But before I could get a question out, the self-proclaimed microphone collector took mine to straighten out a twisted cord. Okay, do that. I'm a microphone collector. Let's see what kind of equipment here he is I'm recording all this. This is precious. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Baker is perpetually straightening things. When I mention the tidiness of his office, he says it's because he spends so little time here. He's held positions as senior research fellow at Harvard's Hauser Center for Nonprofit Organizations, as executive in residence at Columbia Business School, and now as professor and journalist in residence at Fordham University. Business cards from each are lined up on his desk, perfectly aligned, as if along an invisible grid of latitudes. Running north-south are two pens and a letter opener. His is a tabletop of right angles. And as Dr. Baker halts the interview to dial into a conference call, his hand hovers over a desk calendar, and he straightens pages that have gone a quarter-inch askew. But how do you square the ruffled pages of a folding newspaper industry? How do you tidy up a media world in the throes of a revolution? Everybody was always forecasting that print journalism would slowly uh, descend. Nobody knew that it would fall off a cliff, a $50 billion industry. I know a lot about it up close and personal because I'm on the board of a uh, newspaper company. They own 40 newspapers. And uh, it was a company that was about a billion dollars a year in sales up to a a year ago uh, or two years ago, and suddenly the company today is bankrupt. What has happened in America is that everybody knew the Internet was coming and coming fast. Nobody realized, I think even the print journalists themselves, that really that journalism in America had been paid for by classified advertising. That's really what was paying for journalism in America. The 60,000 feet on the street journalists in America, most all of them print, were uh, being paid for by classified advertising. Well, the classified advertising business disappeared with the uh, strengthening of the Internet and particularly Craigslist and other uh, entities like that. By the time they came to that realization, newspaper journalism was in free fall. But it wasn't catastrophic until the collapse of the economy, which exacerbated the whole problem because advertising also stopped. So in that process, newspapers either went bankrupt, out of business, or started cutting back to such an incredible degree that they started letting people go from the newsroom, the content people. So the feet on the street journalists in America are estimated now at about 40,000, down from 60,000. Now, you'd say, well, that's sad and unfortunate, but yeah, we've got television, we've got radio, we've got the Internet, that's where we'll get the news. Uh, You know, it's too bad for these legacy uh, newspapers, but that's the way life is. 
Well, what most people don't realize is that the electronic media, namely the internet, television, radio, television, which is where most people really get their news, about 80% of the people in America get their news from TV, the TV and the internet and radio get their news really from newspapers because there really aren't that many journalists in the electronic media business. So newspapers collapse, they lose their journalists, electronic media winds up doing these highly polarized kind of argument shows where there's lots of heat and no light, we wind up in a country uh, that's a democracy that has its democracy threatened because the people who vote don't have adequate and good information. So two, two possible solutions to the problem of a broken business model with the dawn of the Internet. Uh, those two would be private philanthropy and government support. Private philanthropy will never be enough to replace a $50 billion industry. Never be enough. It will be a wonderful adjunct, but it's going to always be small and always be kind of a a useful, incidental kind of form. We have to figure out how people can ultimately pay for journalism. And they really haven't been. They've only been paying for it indirectly through classified advertising. Well, they have to start in this country, figuring that they have to really pay. They've been paying for it through subscriptions to newspapers. So we've got to have the public start paying on the Internet. That's hard in America because America's used to getting news for nothing, news for free, letting somebody else pay uh, to borrow their eyeballs so they could sell them advertising. It's got to be done some other way. I see creating a business model maybe changing two things uh, that are legal. One is changing the copyright law, because right now the copyright law says that if you spend five years or two years or one year of your life doing a fabulous investigative story, it costs a lot of money to develop it, and you print it, that all those words are protected. Nobody can print your same story without paying you for it. But somebody can summarize your story uh, and not have to pay a nickel. And make money off of, uh, off of all of your work. Well, that copyright law has to change so that somehow if you do work and it's summarized or, or it's aggregated on somebody else's website and they're making money off of it, you have to somehow get paid for that. That means a change in the copyright law. That will help. The other is, is that antitrust laws, which have prohibited newspapers from colluding on pricing, meaning the newspapers all couldn't all get together and say, look, we're going to uh, now start charging on the Internet. If somebody wants news, they have to pay us on the Internet. Right now, any individual newspaper can do that. But they're all afraid to make that move because they're afraid that, oh, well, then you'll stop going to them because you'll go to somebody else and get it for nothing. So everybody's afraid to make that move. But if they can somehow collude legally, (laughs) legally, Uh, And that means a change to the antitrust laws that uh, that may be an answer. So a line of defense is changing the business model. Uh, We've already talked about philanthropy saying it's wonderful, but it's just not big enough to support journalism. The third, which is a model that I espoused in my article in The Nation magazine, was supporting public media in America, having the government support public media. And you say, well, we don't want the government involved in journalism. Well, the government's involved in journalism in most of the major free democracies of this world, and they're doing a heck of a job because there are firewalls and protections that don't allow the government to uh, control any of the content. But in America, 
this huge country of 300 million people, the government puts about $400 million a year into public media. In Britain, that has the BBC, a country one-fifth the size of the United States, the government puts in about $6 billion. And in a country like England, even if every newspaper went out of business, the BBC, with its 5,000 journalists, are enough to sustain a critical mass of journalism in that country until some other business models develop for uh, traditional journalism. So I would argue that this is a good time with the government bailing everybody else out. Why not bail out journalism in America, which is critical to our free society? And if that's the case, then we have a chance of making it. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson talking to Dr. Bill Baker. He's calling for a government bailout of public media. Today, about $400 million in public money goes to support public media, which in America is set up like a co-op, Dr. Baker says. In the case of TV, the co-op is PBS, and in the case of radio, it's usually NPR. Theoretically, the co-op is owned by independent stations, or as you'll hear Dr. Baker refer to them, the public broadcasters. The money that comes from the government right now flows to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is supposed to be the heat shield that separates the government from the public broadcasters, from the independent public broadcasters. The public broadcasters, in turn, pay dues to either NPR or PBS. In the case of PBS and in NPR, there are some very large stations. In the case of PBS, really uh, only three really big stations, which produce the vast majority of the programs on public television. So these very large stations wind up being not only members of the co-op in the sense of taking programs from PBS and paying dues, but also suppliers to the co-op of supplying programming to them. So money from the government um, helps to cover the cost for member stations when they want to buy content but also pay dues to be members. This is Well, in a sense, the money that comes from the government, although it's very small, it's a small piece of the average public television station's budget. And the stations can do whatever they want with the money as long as it's a appropriate use of uh, public television operations. Most wind up using the money to pay, in the case of television, uh, PBS dues. That's where they theoretically use the money, but it could be used for anything. It's really not enough money to perform real operations, and that's what we need. That's what the system craves, which is the ability to have, at a local level, significant local operations to do local programming and to do local journalism, which then can be somehow combined into a powerful national journalistic force, the way the Associated Press performs that service for the newspapers of America, and I might add for the broadcasters of America. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the content that comes from PBS. Um, before the Internet, if I wanted to watch Charlie Rose or another documentary by Michael Kirk, or if I wanted to watch PBS NewsHour, I would turn on my local PBS member station. So my local one was WETA, so I'd turn that on, and that was how I got to PBS. So the member station was um, crucial to me getting PBS programming. Now, I don't have a television, and I don't need one, because I can go right online. I watch all my Charlie Rose online. I watch, you know, Inside the Meltdown, 
my queer documentary online. It's the same way I listen to NPR programming. The member stations are becoming kind of these vestigial structures of pre-internet. I'm wondering why why should taxpayers have to shell out more than 400 million to pay for member stations that aren't serving them as much as the content that comes from PBS, the content that comes from NPR? Well, wait a minute. You just said that you are getting content from PBS and NPR. And what did I just say? I said that uh, public broadcasters basically use that money, that local money, to keep PBS and NPR alive. That's where the money comes from for PBS and NPR is the local public TV stations and and radio stations. Local public radio stations and TV stations, in fact, have the vast majority of the PBS and NPR viewing and listening. Yes, people can get some programs on online. You can't get all the PBS programs online. And you can get many of the public radio programs online. But most people get their programs. Most people get those programs from their traditional public radio and television stations. You know, they're not obsolete entities. And if local public television and radio stations had even more resources to do significant local news, that they would become even more important and more a part of the community. If a public radio or television station is simply a repeater of PBS or NPR, they probably aren't serving the real community purpose that they should be. The reason they aren't, that often they wind up being simply repeaters, is they don't have the money to do more. But if they had the money on the scale of what even the BBC has in a country 20% the size of the United States, we could have a powerful, meaningful local media force that combines nationally into something very significant that benefits our entire society. That's what I'm talking about. That would be great if we had that, if we had that increased public funding. But it doesn't look likely. And I think, I've, I think I've heard you say in a talk at the Hauser Center that it's not, it's not going to be increased. It's just not going to happen. I don't know. No, I, I don't think I uh, ever said that wouldn't happen. I'd say it's probably doubtful that the Congress will step up to the level that they should. But I see more and more, especially, uh, especially now after, after the government TARP money going to bail out uh, banks, I think there could be nothing more important right now than to bailing out journalism in America. And I think Congress could be, uh, might be considered to be a source of serious money, given what it takes. I mean, we're not, even, we're not asking for anything, the equivalent of TARP money. We're asking for a few billion dollars. Well, that, in the scheme of the money the government's given away, that's almost, a, that's almost a, in the rounding error. So I think there is uh, some definite hope in that, in that area. I think that if the local American public broadcaster collapses, first it's a very mature system, so if the local broadcaster collapses, so will PBS and NPR. They are all truly interconnected. They are all really truly part of one entity. And the other is, is that the real relationship with the givers that represent 50% probably of all the money that goes into public radio and television, you viewers like you, listeners like you, is a relationship that is at the local level, uh, is a relationship at the local public radio or public television uh, station level. PBS, NPR doesn't have that relationship. They aren't up close and personal with the, with the, uh, with the, with the viewers and the donors and really don't have the capacity to be so. So 
half of all the money that goes into public media is probably from these donations. Well, uh, those donations would also disappear. So we can't let the local public stations disappear. But I, I know that you know that, and, and I work in public radio, so I know that. But I'm not sure that the average person who says, yeah, I'm going to pony up you know, a membership to my local station really understands that it doesn't go straight to their favorite program. It goes to the local station in a world where by January 2010, McDonald's will have Wi-Fi in every McDonald's in the country, free Wi-Fi. So I can listen to my favorite programs. I can watch them for the price of an iPod in any McDonald's I want. Um, in a world where I can publish, it's a button away. Anybody can be a content producer. Does it make sense to have this distribution model where you've got to take into account all these little mini institutions around the country? I mean, that just seems like an economic inefficiency. Well, it's really not that inefficient because most of these uh, small stations are incredibly efficient. And, uh, you know, yeah, you might be able to listen to public radio. Uh, you won't be able to watch public – well, you might be able to watch public TV and McDonald's. Uh, you're going to get awfully fat doing that. <laughs> if, if you have to go to McDonald's to listen to uh, uh, public radio or watch public television, I think uh, – uh, you, you know, I mean, come on, that's not really going to happen. You might catch a piece of a, of, of a car talk or something there, but you're not going to go, going to going to go to McDonald's to listen to radio. Uh, you're going to listen to it on your radio station while you're driving, and you don't have Wi-Fi in your car, and it's going to be a long time before you ever have it, maybe never. And, and if you want to watch the news hour on HDTV, you're going to have to watch it at home. And I would argue, especially in the you know stations like the one I ran, uh, like uh, WETA in Washington, WGBH in Boston, these local stations do a lot more than just, uh, you know, the, especially the large ones, do a lot more than just carry public radio or television programs. And I came back from a, a speech in Cleveland, Ohio, where uh, the public radio and television stations in Cleveland, WVIZ, and I can't remember the call letters of the public radio station, they call the combined entity their idea stream, is more than just a public radio or a public TV station. It, re- it really is the uh, focus, the, uh, the campfire, the public square of the Cleveland community. It is much more. It, it is a massive cultural resource. And that's really almost the ideal model of what public broadcasting needs to be and can be, and in many places is. It is the center of the community in those, uh, in those towns. Well, nobody wants that to disappear. You tell me it's the institution It's Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. I'm with Dr. Bill Baker, whose article in The Nation, Trumpeting How to Save the News, served as the springboard for our conversation about the future of journalism. In that article, Dr. Baker writes... The costs of letting our journalistic institutions decay aren't visible, like collapsed bridges or tent cities, but they're just as dire. A thriving news media, which America is in real danger of losing, is the unspoken assumption behind not only the First Amendment, but the whole idea of self-government. It shouldn't seem radical to expect the same government that recognizes the freedom of the press to also ensure the survival of the press. We know that the press is protected in the Constitution, and we know that while that's true, journalism was the answer when the Constitution was being drafted. Journalism was the answer to how will we inform ourselves? How will we be an informed democracy? Now, if journalism is still the answer to that question, it makes sense to to fund a public media um, and to fund these, these institutions that 
were created to work before the internet was around. But now that the internet is here, now that this is the new efficient distribution model, is journalism as a professional institution, a professional class of, of people who tell the truth and write it down and spread it around, is that still the answer to how we inform ourselves? The answer is, of course, yes. Journalism is the only occupation, the only industry mentioned in the Constitution. And the Internet is simply a distribution tool. Journalism still needs to be done. There still have to be people gathering facts and information. And while you could say, well, it is now going to be a new form of free journalism done by citizens, citizen journalists, untrained, unskilled, I've got an iPhone with a camera in it, and I am now instantly a journalist. Well, you might be able to get a picture of a fire. You might be able to get a picture of somebody doing something bad. But do you have the ability to analyze it, to put it in context, to look for the nuance that really is the true journalism? I would argue that citizen journalists leave a lot to be desired. If I need a brain operation, I don't want a citizen brain surgeon doing that. I want a trained expert. And what we need in this country now more than ever are profoundly skilled and trained journalists. It's a very dangerous time uh, because there are a lot of things floating around in cyberspace that look like facts but are totally wrong. I see that over and over again. I even see it sometimes in uh, trained professional publications because they've had to cut back so far they don't even have the ability to do the research that really is necessary. Citizen journalists is not going to do the trick. What's the difference between a citizen journalist and a professional journalist. The difference between a citizen journalist and a professional journalist is that a professional journalist has training, a professional journalist has industry standards, a professional journalist, you know, has a kind of ethic that says, I have to be independent and to seek the truth. I'm not just here to give my opinion. So a citizen journalist, um, not necessarily maliciously getting it wrong, but just maybe doesn't have the training, hasn't been able to cut their teeth anywhere, his or her teeth anywhere. Um, industry standards, well, those aren't there because maybe you don't have a good editor. You don't have any editor. Mm-hmm. You're just putting it on your blog. Basically, it's just kind of time on the job. The more time you have on the job, that makes you a professional journalist? Oh, I don't think so. I think you're a professional journalist if you're part of a professional journalistic organization because you raised a, a point that is really critical, and that is journalism is often a cooperative effort. There's not only the act of gathering the information, there's the act of of it being questioned internally and being edited and fact-checked. All of the major publications that uh, exist, you, you mentioned an article that I did for The Nation. Well, I was really pleased and delighted that virtually everything I said, there was somebody that called and didn't call me, but called my sources and double-checked and triple-checked every single fact that was in there. That's what we call professional journalism. I've seen people who have started as citizen journalists. They've started to publish on a blog, and they've slowly attracted eyeballs. They've slowly attracted advertising, and they've slowly built a name for themselves, not as a citizen journalist, but as somebody with a strong ethic, somebody who can be trusted mm-hmm. without being a professional. Mm-hmm. I, I, I read these blogs every day, and I'm wondering if maybe those citizen journalists will start to leave the institutions behind and, and bring with them a new, a new audience be, because they can be trusted and because they've kept going. Well, and they uh, haven't had to wait for federal funding. Well, I don't want to diminish anybody, including serious uh, citizen journalists. 
I will say, however, that um, in my experience and really analyzing the uh, world of citizen journalism, a lot of it, even those citizen journalists who have attracted some following, the following still in relative terms is small, and their economic following is even smaller. So they may have an ad, they may have this, but usually these citizen journalists are all forced to find another job you know, to repair cars or, you know, or, or uh, drive a bus or do something to make a living to keep food on the table. So it is not a model that I think is sustainable. There will be, as always, there are wonderful genius people that come out of nowhere and are able to do wonderful things, and I don't ever diminish that. But it's not enough to make a true cadre of serious, solid journalism that is necessary for a society. And also, many of these citizen journalists still don't have editors because they don't have the money to have editing or or fact-checking or other supports that are necessary for the true process of serious journalism. Again, we don't diminish anything they're doing, and we're grateful that they're there. We're grateful that people care. And, you know, I would argue that anybody who wants to be a journalist and can't find a job should give that a try because that's a heck of a way to gain experience. But it's not as good a way to gain experience as going and working in a larger news organization where you have interaction with other uh, professionals. But given that those jobs are now pretty much impossible to find, someone's got to do something, and that's, you know, as good a start as anywhere. Citizen journalists especially if they're ones of good faith. And, of course, it's hard to determine what the individual ethics of people are. You have to look at their work over a long period to measure them. can be a valuable tool, but it's not where I think America has to get. And where I think America has to go is come up with either this new model And a new model is quite possible, again, given changes in the law. I mean, if all of a sudden antitrust laws were changed and all the newspapers in America could get together and say, if you want to see any story that we're doing, you've got to pay for it, all of us, they could suddenly be back in, in serious business again, hiring people and doing their journalism. If the copyright laws were changed, there would be, again, a chance for money to flow to journalists. So there is hope, and I'm not giving up. And, of course, the work of centers like mine here at Fordham, at think tanks, at universities, and foundations around America, we're all working on this same problem. And we're going to, we're going to crack this egg and make an omelet. Where should young uh, aspiring journalists go right now? I was going to I was going to make a funny joke like go say ahead, go, you know go, go to McDonald's you know I don't know I mean you know I think young journalists right now have the best oppor- their best opportunity is to try to be a citizen journalist but also this is the time to be back in school learning some specialty so if one becomes a citizen journalist and say picks a, a subject like healthcare they also happen to have a, an RM degree or an MD or a, a degree in nutrition or whatever it might be, so that they, uh, they can be journalists, but they're also experts in that field. And then they pick that field and go very narrowly in that field so that they have a level of credibility that somebody else with good intentions doesn't have. That's what I would do right now if I were a young person interested in journalism and just getting out of undergraduate school. Not a degree in journalism, not a degree in communications, a degree in a specialty, a skill. Probably a degree in a specialty of some kind.
whatever it is, because every area needs, you know, maybe it's a degree in political science. Maybe, you know, if you want to cover politics, maybe it's a degree in some medically related field if one's interested in that. It's going to be hard to be kind of a general journalist for a while, and the best opportunity is also to get a degree and also hedge your bets so you have another, another profession, another skill. There are people who talk about about journalism almost with a, not hubris, but a, a little bit of a assuredness that it'll bounce back. They'll figure a way to monetize it. It'll bounce back. It's not, you said hedge your bets, and that that makes me think that you're not at all no, too I, optimistic. Well, I mean, I've been in the media for fifty years, and I went through the one would argue the heyday of the television industry. Well, I went and got a PhD in a whole other field. I got a PhD in industrial psychology. Because I was hedging my bets. My view was that uh, who knew? In most of these appealing kinds of public professions, the, the funnel is very narrow. Even if this were a go-go world and there were thousands of new jobs created, there are tens of thousands of people graduating and wanting to be journalists. So the chances of getting a job even in good times are remote. So I wanted to have something else I could do that was, you know, kind of close enough to my uh, area of interest that if, uh, if the media world didn't work out for me, I could do something else. Turned out I didn't need it. No, he didn't. Dr. Bill Baker is a professor and journalist in residence at Fordham University. Thanks for tuning in to Fordham Conversations. If you missed an episode, you can find archived shows on WFUV.org or subscribe to our podcast. Become a fan of our Facebook page. Just search WFUV's Fordham Conversations or follow us on Twitter. We're registered as FOCON. That's F-O-C-O-N. Robin Shannon will be your host next week. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Mary Wilson. Yep, but I'm a 